0: Well, good morning, brothers and sisters and guests. It's so nice to continue to walk through Scripture this morning as we continue our walk through the Bible series, Introduction to the Holy Scriptures Book by Book. And as you know, as we're working through each book of the Bible, my aim is to give you the big idea, the main main message of each book of Scripture. This morning, we turn to 1 Corinthians, and the church of Corinth Uh, is a very interesting church, which we will see this morning. But before we get to Corinth itself, I want to start by saying that human greatness is not the same as moral goodness. Human greatness is not the same as moral goodness. You can be a great human, but not be a good person. Now, what do I mean by that? When we look at people, men and women who have accomplished great deeds from the human perspective. Maybe they're great musicians, great artists, great leaders or rulers. Uh, Maybe they are leaders in industry or science or technology. There are many people in this world who have done amazing feats that when you look into their lives, they're not great people. They're not good. Now, when I say moral goodness, I'm not talking in this instance about total depravity. Of course, we've already seen from Romans that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. But what I mean is that just because you are great at doing something, it doesn't mean that you are a good person, that you're just uh, uh, a, like a general, normal, like well-intentioned person. So, for example, when I was uh, a teenager, I really was getting into music. You guys know I love playing guitar, and I was getting into classic rock and all of this stuff, and I, I thought it was pretty pretty great, and there's some bands I really admired. But, you know, over the course of time, as you grow up, as you mature, uh, as I was growing up in the faith as well, you start to look into their lives, and you're like, these are not really good people at all. These These people are actually pretty awful. When you look at their lifestyles and their choices, their their choices with with women, their choices with drugs, their choices with money, their choices with lifestyle, the things they say about God, there's a huge disconnect between what seems to be such a great thing and how they live. You know, and as Christians, we can be tempted then to think that this is only a problem for unbelievers. Right. This is only a problem for those outside the church. But you don't have to be in the church long to realize that we have the problem just as badly. In some churches, maybe more and some less, but that this is a problem inside the church as well. We're going to see this firsthand as we look at what the church in Corinth was dealing with in their day. In fact, Paul begins the letter by reminding them, you're not lacking in any gift. In his thanksgiving section, in chapter 1, he says, in verse 7, you're not lacking anything, any gift whatsoever. And yet we're going to see that Corinth, probably more than any of the churches that the the apostles planted, was the problem child. They were filled with, With problems and while they thought they were mature in Christ Paul's going to tell them you are spiritual infants and you're still not ready for the mature things of God so it is possible in the church to be a great preacher you can be a a great church member You can be serving in hundreds of programs. You can be doing evangelism in the streets. You can be bearing witness for Jesus, and yet your life can be completely void of maturity. And so there's a warning for each one of us to take care. What what are we boasting in? What do we value in this church? What are the things we care about? What are our goals when we show up on a Sunday? These things are mission critical. And especially as we're a young church plant, as we're, as we're seeking to grow a core group of families to build this church, it is so critical in these early days that we understand what the church should be and we understand what our place is in it you know when we're a small church plant it's really easy to think man i wish we just had this gift or that gift or the person that could do this thing or that thing but we could have all of it and be completely dead so let's be careful what we value and let's learn from Paul so that we individually and as a church can grow towards maturity in Jesus Christ. So let's dive in to the text. We're going to divide the, the sermon uh, in two parts this morning. You can see in your worship folder, if you want to follow the structure of 1 Corinthians, uh, it's basically divided into two parts. Paul's receiving, Paul had received reports about the church of Corinth. And so he responds to that. And then the second part of 1 Corinthians deals with Paul then responding to a letter from Corinth about how they should do a number of things, which you see listed there in your worship folder. So I'm not going to walk through those point by point this morning, but hopefully that will be a helpful guide for you as you read 1 Corinthians. But this morning, we're primarily going to look at uh, two things then. How how is the church in Corinth, uh, how are they still spiritual infants? And then secondly, how does Paul respond to that problem? Okay, so those are the two ways we're going to look at this letter this morning. So first, how are they spiritual infants? And I'm going to give you a number of examples. So Corinth thinks that they're mature and strong. And Paul is going to correct that problem and give them a sober understanding of their state. So number one, how are they spiritual infants? Number one, divisions in the church. There are massive divisions in the church. Chapters one to four deal with church politics. There are all sorts of issues going on. So for example in chapter 1 and I would encourage you to have your bibles open you can page through with me as we work through the text. But in chapter 1 verse 10 Paul has to appeal to the church to agree. Agree with one another. Be united. And why what's the cause of the division? The cause of the division is that they are putting they are ranking the apostles. They're ranking the apostles. It's just like the person that, I want to be baptized by that pastor. No, I, well, I was baptized by that guy, right? Or I was baptized in that place, right? They're ranking the spiritual importance of the apostles. You see, in verse 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, Peter. Or I follow Christ. And Paul then has to respond to them. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Related to this issue of ranking apostles, and it'll come back in chapter 4, is boasting. So number two, another way that they're spiritual infants, is boasting. Boasting. What kind of boasting are they doing They're boasting in their giftedness, in their eloquence, particularly in these opening chapters, probably the power of different apostles or different teachers. It was well known that Paul was not one who was known for speaking eloquently. Paul was very blunt. He just went right to it. I think Apollos is probably more eloquent in his Delivery of speeches. You know, if you listen to different preachers, you notice that different preachers have very different kinds of styles. Some are very scholastic, some are very organized, some some feel much more spontaneous and um, spontaneous. Um, Some are very winsome and emotive. Some are more like boo, boo. You're just getting like the doctrine. And of course, the Worldly value in the Corinthian age was the rhetorician. The person who, no matter whether he was right or wrong, could he win the argument. And they want preachers like the world, right? They want want TED talkers, right? They They want the rhetorician to win the crowd. And that's what they're looking at. They're boasting in external things. And so Paul has to deal with that in chapter 1, verse 18 and following, where he finally says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. But we'll get to more of Paul's response later. What else is going on? Number three, scandalous Sexual immorality. I mean, all sexual immorality is scandalous at one level. But the kind of sexual immorality that they were celebrating or allowing to continue was the kind that even would make pagans shudder. If you look at chapter 5, for example, in verse 1, Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So in other words, uh, there's somebody in the church of Corinth sleeping with his stepmom, and the church isn't doing anything about it. In fact, may even be condoning it, because in verse 2, Paul begins by saying, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? So that actually the very spiritual affections of the Corinthians is twisted and upside down, where they're celebrating some kind of twisted sense of Christian freedom where we're free from our sins so then we can do whatever we want with our bodies. And they're boasting of the freedom to do wicked things. And they're not doing their duty to discipline the offender. I mean, talk about a church. But it gets better, or worse, I should say. Right? How about number four, another way that they're spiritual infants, civil lawsuits with one another. In chapter six, Paul addresses the fact that they are going to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints. So the divisions and the quarreling is so bad in the church that they're actually suing each other. And they're not seeking to resolve conflict within the church. Rather, they're going to the civil magistrate and they're defaming the name of Christ and the church far and wide as they're having their petty battles in the public courtroom. That they are so spiritually immature that they cannot even settle conflicts among themselves. Paul says in chapter 6, verse 1, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So these are church members taking advantage of one another, committing fraud against one another, all the while boasting in their spiritual supremacy as the great church of Corinth. Known to have every spiritual gift. A number five, a fifth way that there's spiritual infants, infants is their practice of temple prostitution. Temple prostitution. Now, I don't know what the exact modern equivalent of temple prostitution would be because. Um, It's not like they're simply going to the strip club, which would be horrendous and awful. And sadly, I have heard of cases of that of Christian businessmen going with their colleagues, you know, on business trips to places they ought not go. But in the time of Corinth, prostitution was part of the temple rituals, okay, of the pagan Greco Roman gods. And probably related to some kind of idea I've been liberated from sin, so now I can. Um, do what I want with the body, they are actually going to the temple prostitutes, at least some of the church members. They're participating in the raves and the rituals of the debauched culture around them. Paul has to chastise them, remind them that the body, uh, chapter 6, verse 13 Well, let me back up to things they're probably saying. Look at verse 12. They're saying something like, in quotes, all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. Paul has to respond, but not all things are helpful. They say again, all things are lawful for me. These are probably things that they wrote in the letter to Paul asking for advice on things. Aren't all things lawful? Because you see, Paul's quoting them. All things are lawful for me but i will not be dominated by anything food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and god will destroy both one and the other the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the lord and the lord for the body verse 15 do you not know that your bodies are members of christ shall i then take the members of christ and make them members of a prostitute never or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute, becomes one body with her. He has to tell them in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So we've seen divisions, boasting, scandalous sexual immorality, civil lawsuits, temple prostitution. How about another one? Uh, Number six, they had issues with marriage and sexual intimacy. They're actually boasting that the more... So this is the flip. This is the weird, strange thing going on in Corinth. The flip side of the problem is you have others saying... Even if you're married, you should not have sexual relations anymore. Okay, so you see the Corinthian church, you've got people on all sides. They're flip-flopping all over. It seems like nobody's balanced in the middle. So you've got others saying you shouldn't have sex at all, even with your wife. So Paul has to deal about principles of marriage. in verse, Chapter 7, verse 5, do not deprive one another. In verse chapter 7, verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. So he's got to deal with sex again. That's a big problem in the church. How about a seventh way that they're spiritual infants? They're boasting in their rights as Christian. I have rights, these are my rights. And I will have my rights. So for example, in chapter 8, there's issues with food. So a big problem with food in the early church was not merely the, the kosher food laws that were a barrier between Jewish and Gentile fellowship within the church. But there was also the problem of meat in the marketplace that was sacrificed to idols. So that some people knowing that Christians were eating meat sacrificed to idols, it was actually searing their conscience because some were thinking that that meat that was sacrificed to idol, was uh, an idol was really part of pagan worship. And they're seeing Christians then in their mind participating in pagan idolatry. But then you've got others saying, it's my right, I can eat whatever I want, which is actually true. Paul will say that. But they were doing it in such a way that was destroying their brother, the person with weak faith. And it was destroying their witness in the community. But they're all boasting about, I have these rights, and they're going to do them no matter what. Paul reminds them then, In chapter 8, verse 9, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food as offered to idols? And so by your knowledge... That is their rights, their knowledge of their rights. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So again, Paul has to admonish them that their rights are not everything. Their rights are not everything everything in fact he'll say in verse 13 therefore if food makes my brother stumble i will never eat meat lest i make my brother stumble we go on this is a list filled with this is a book filled with problems an eighth way they are spiritual infants is in relationship to idolatry look at chapter 10 We responded to our scripture readings this morning with uh, Paul's words here in chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that f- that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. It seems that some of these church members in Corinth were not merely eating the food sacrificed to idols but were actually eagerly participating again in the cultic temple rites in the city of Corinth. Indeed, one's social status could clearly be seen in the temples of the pagan gods and in the raves it's like the ultimate failure in cultural accommodation where you think as a Christian you're going to be like them that you might win them to Jesus I don't know if that was their intention but we see that sometimes today they're just full-blown in it Celebrating the gods, it would be like if if the Norse pagan gods were still worshipped and praised today. You know, and we go to church, and then in the afternoon we go over and celebrate in the feasts and in the parties, and we're and we're giving cheers to Thor, saying "school," right? You could see it happen, and that's exactly what was happening in Corinth. The theaters and the marketplaces and the temples where the debauchery was taking place, the idolatry, the place that put you in high esteem in the public eye, was where these weak, immature Christians were going to find their status. And Paul says, Hey, you might be baptized like all those who were baptized into Moses, every man, woman, and child who went through the Red Sea. You might be baptized, but that doesn't mean God won't destroy you if you apostatize, commit idolatry, and you grumble, and you lose your way. A ninth way. There's 12 of these, and I'm going to be quick with these last few A ninth way, and uh, mind you, these are just, I'm giving you examples. There are more. There are more (laughs) problems. Uh, But a ninth way is dealing with symbols of authority. It's the topic of head coverings, one of these controversial topics, I think, in the church again today. But the big idea and the focus of this passage is not what you wear on your head or the clothing that you wear to church, but the symbol of authority that you have particularly as women. And what's going on here in this context is that women were dressing in a way that was like the cultic prostitutes in the temple, letting their hair down, dressing in a way that in that culture was scandalous, I will argue, I mean, this is another uh, uh, an argument for another day, a sermon for another day. I hope we can work through this sermon or through this letter at some point in our life as a church. But we see in the Old Testament that God commanded Jewish men, and especially the priests, to wear a turban. They had their head covered when they worshipped and prayed. In this context, in Corinth, Men should have their heads uncovered. So I don't think we're given in this chapter a timeless principle. But the point is when you come to church, dress in a way that honors your husband, that honors your head. And dress in a way that doesn't promote scandal so that even if an unbeliever comes in, they are shocked at how you are dressed or how you're behaving. This becomes even more apparent when you look at the entire context of 1 Corinthians. And in their day, men with heads uncovered and women with heads covered was the appropriate cultural way to show that they are under an authority. But that's all uh, we can discuss on that this morning Uh, Three more ways. Number 10, over the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. In chapter 11, Paul has to chastise them because some are getting drunk during the Lord's Supper. In the early church, the Lord's Supper was usually a part of a larger meal called the agape feast. So they would come together for fellowship and then Uh, at some point they would break off and celebrate the Lord's Supper. But what's going on is that they are selfishly eating while others are going hungry. Some are getting drunk. They're all doing it in their own way, and they're completely destroying the sacrament In chapter 11, verse 17, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Actually, it would have been better if Corinth didn't gather for worship, if they just stayed home. He says, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized, when you come together, verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. They think it is. 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So the way that the church members are behaving, some are bringing their feast, and it's like they bring their food, and it's just for them. They bring their drink, and it's just for them. And other poor people, maybe some are slaves that are members of the church, and they've got nothing, and they're humiliated because you've got the family with all the goods just... Gluttoning it up, and their brother for whom Christ died has nothing. They're destroying the body. and they in name, they say they're practicing the Lord's Supper, but in truth they are not. And they might as well just stay home. Two other final ways that they're spiritual infants, spiritual gifts, Number eleven, spiritual, gifts. They are abusing their spiritual gifts. They are abusing their spiritual gifts. Rather than using them for the common good, as they were meant for, they're using their spiritual gifts as a platform for pride and self-glory, to show off how spiritual they are, whether it's speaking in tongues or prophesying. It is interesting to me that the only place in Scripture where we see spiritual tongues mentioned outside of Acts when the apostles were able to preach uh, in a language that everyone could understand, the only place where we see spiritual or, um, tongues mentioned is in the church that had the most problems of any church in the New Testament. Paul does not go on to say that tongues are bad. He talks about his own devotional life. But he says that if you're going to use them in church, you have to have an interpreter. But more importantly, he says prophecy is much better, which is this idea of giving exhortations to the church. Because that actually builds up, because you have some kind of intentional message, that, or uh, intelligible message that you can understand. And that's better. But, anyways, they are all over the place. They are all over the place. And Paul has to remind them that every gift you have is for the upbuilding of the church. Every gift you have is for the upbuilding of the church. For example, 1 Corinthians 12, 8, uh, 12 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Every gift we had should be for building one another up, right? For caring for the children, for caring for widows, for caring for singles, for caring for families, for caring for one another, that we have all these gifts and the ear can't say to the nose, I don't need you, right? Or the hand to the eye, I have no need of you. God has given the whole church various gifts so that the whole Will be built up in love. And I praise God for how I have seen this church family do that with one another. And I pray it always continues. A twelfth way that they're spiritual infants is their lacking understanding of the doctrine of the resurrection. And I'm not going to go into that this morning. But again, they are completely misunderstanding why Jesus died, what it means for believers, and you, you can study for yourself all sorts of problems going on related to that. Okay, so we've seen 12 ways then that, and these are just examples, we could have looked at more, from the church that outwardly looks like the best church ever, with every spiritual gift, you're not lacking any gift, you see Paul setting them up in chapter 1. You're not lacking anything, but you are utterly dead inside. So how does he respond? Let's close by just looking at a few ways then that Paul responds to their spiritual immaturity. Number one, he responds with the gospel. He responds with the gospel, in chapter 1, verse 18, he reminds them, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In chapter 1, verse 30, he reminds them of this gospel then, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He reminds it: it is the gospel that levels the playing field. It's the gospel that levels the rich. It's the gospel that raises up the poor. It's the gospel that lowers the wise of this age. And shows them as folly, the gifted of this age. It's the one, it's the gospel that elevates those who think they have nothing to contribute. And they are taught that they are even by the Spirit given essential gifts for Christ's own body. It is the gospel which is the folly to the wise man which is a scandal to Jews. It is the gospel that gives the power for salvation and for uniting and equipping the church for using its gifts in a way that gives glory to God. Because when we use what we have, whether it's our time, our talents, or our resources, we acknowledge that none of it is our own. But it is all a gift from God. And it is all for His church. And it also reminds us then don't put your hope in having in your music program. Don't put your hope in how you dress. Don't put your hope in the cars you drive. Don't put your hope in how big your building, or if you have a building at all, boast in the Lord who because of the blood of Jesus has made us wise in him, who has made us righteous in him, who has sanctified us in him, who has redeemed us, who will raise our bodies from the dead on the last day, that we might boast not in ourselves but in our Lord. So Paul begins his admonishment of these immature Christians with the gospel. Without the gospel, we can never grow to maturity. The gospel is essential from the day you're born to the day you die. The gospel is the first and the last, the A to Z of the Christian life, or fill in your own alphabet. It's the beginning and the end. It's everything, it's our food, it's our hope, it's the way we glorify Christ. It's the way we edify each other. A second way that Paul responds to their spiritual immaturity is by warning them. He gives a number of warnings. I'll just share a few examples. Look at chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants of Christ, in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Even now, you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. You know, in like Alcoholics Anonymous or any kind of addiction recovery, right, they say the step one is to admit you have a problem. Step one for Corinth is admitting that they are actually infants in Jesus, that they're actually not even ready for the more mature doctrines of Holy Scripture. They still need the gospel basics, the basics of repentance, the basics of what we saw in Romans last week of condemnation, of justification, sanctification, glorification they're not even ready to talk about spiritual gifts because they don't even get the gospel yet. And the same is true for each one of us. There's no way that we can mature, not only if we don't understand the gospel, but if we also don't have a right estimate of our spiritual condition, which requires humility. It requires learning from others. It requires acknowledging that we don't know everything and that we don't have all the gifts. We need each other. We need to learn from one another. But the question for Corinth, and it's a question for you, are you ready? Because even now, Corinth says you're not ready. You're not ready for it. So Paul warns them uh, I don't have time to show you other places, but you'll notice the theme as you read through 1 Corinthians of childishness, of immaturity that is woven throughout this letter. And Paul has to remind them of where they really are. A third way that he responds to them is through discipline. In chapter 4, verse 21, you know, Paul has to threaten them, basically. He says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Up in verse 18 there, he says, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people but their power. For the kingdom of God is not consistent talk but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with Love and a spirit of gentleness. And then he goes on to deal with this scandalous sexual immorality, this this guy who's sleeping with his stepmom, and the church seems to be A okay with it, not doing anything about it. And he has to remind them in chapter 5 that they need to discipline this man. Verse 5 of chapter 5 You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, discipline this man. Give him over to the darkness that he's serving with the hope that he will be redeemed and that he will repent, that his soul will be saved in the day of the Lord. He reminds them also of the Old Testament pattern in chapter 5, verse 13. God judges those outside, And then he quotes from Deuteronomy, purge the evil person from among you. It's ironic that the church is typically known for criticizing those outside the church while not caring at all for what's going on inside the church, right? It's so much easier to point fingers at others than at ourselves, right? And how the unity of the church or disunity, how dealing with problems in the church is going. Paul reminds them, God judges those outside. You don't have to worry about that. God will deal with those outside. Purge the immoral brother in your midst. These, it's, it's remarkable that in Deuteronomy, these purge the evil person. It's, it's repeated six or seven times in the book of Deuteronomy, generally dealing with capital punishment of killing the, of stoning the person because of flagrant behavior in the Old Testament. Here we see excommunication as a kind of, uh, it's a kind of execution. It's a kind of saying, you are dead. You are dead to us. And yet, Christian discipline is also given with the hope of restoration. The hope of restoration. But this kind of destruction language is what Paul uses in chapter 5, verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Some kind of serious destruction and judgment in that excommunication, but with the hope that their soul, that their spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord. A fourth way that Paul responds to their spiritual immaturity is through a series of corrections. In fact, the entire letter is Paul responding to their errors. And we obviously don't have time to look at all of them today, but I do again want to draw your attention to chapter 10 that we looked at, how Paul reminds them from scripture how Paul reminds them from scripture about what happens even those who are baptized whether they're baptized through Moses or baptized in the church to those who rebel to those who commit idolatry to those who go on boasting and grumbling he reminds them of the the he reminds them that the very spiritual realities at play in the church were the same spiritual realities in the wilderness Telling that even, you know that cloud? That was Christ. You know that rock you drank from? That was Christ. That Christ in his pre-incarnate state was active and present in delivering them. Jesus' own brother, in, in Jude, in his letter, talks about how Jesus was the one who saved and the one who destroyed. So that the same spiritual realities in the New Testament church were present in the Old Testament. In a different form, but the substance was the same. Just because for to some degree you are baptizing Christ or you drunk from Christ, it doesn't mean that you're beyond judgment if you rebel and you harden your heart in rebellion against him. So he has to correct them. Right? Same with spiritual gifts, which was a big one. He has to correct them and remind them what it's for. These things are for building up the body, not building up your ego. They're for edifying the church, not feeding your own needs. A fifth way, and I've, I've got six here, so a fifth way then. Chapter 13. What's chapter 13? If you've ever been to a Christian wedding, you should know Chapter 13, right? Chapter 13, and if you had this read at your, at your wedding, don't feel too bad. It's, it's good stuff. But we often miss the context of what Paul means by these words. In chapter 13, Paul talks about the way of love, right? And the way it's read in a wedding is something like, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love... I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbals. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all flesh so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. I give away all, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to burn, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices in truth love bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things love never ends right that's the way you hear it really warm and positive in the context of first corinthians you see paul saying this is love and you are not it This whole chapter is surrounded by Corinth's spiritual immaturity and boasting. They're destroying one another with the way they're behaving. This is love and you are not it. So the way that it should be read is, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong. And a clanging cymbal. That's what you are, Corinth. You're just noise. And if I have all prophetic powers like you boast in, and like we just talked about in the prior chapter, and understand all mysteries as you claim to have all knowledge, as we've already discussed in this letter. And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And that's what you are right now. You're not even ready for the deeper things. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not do what you're doing, Corinth, envying and boasting. It is not like you are, arrogant and rude. It does not like you are doing by claiming your Christian rights in chapter 8 and 9 and 10. It does not insist on its own way like you are. It is not irritable and resentful like you church politicians who are pitting one another against each other and the apostles against each other. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing as you're boasting in gross sexual immorality and idolatry and prostitution. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing like you are, like your arrogant leaders are, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And as for you who are boasting in your prophetic gifts, Be reminded, as for prophecies, they will pass away. For you who boast in the ability to speak in tongues greater than everyone else in the church, let me remind you, as for tongues, they will cease. For those who claim to be wiser than Paul himself, let me remind you, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child... I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Are you ready to give up your childish ways? For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. That's just a, a whole different reading, isn't it, when you read it in the context of the book, of this letter. And of course, it would be great to read at a wedding, rightly understood, because you, when you get married, you're really immature, you're still really selfish, you've been used to being a single, you've got, you've got problems, there's going to be a lot of fights that first year as you figure out how to live together, so it's a great chapter to read, It's a great one for a wedding, but rightly understood, it actually is not just simply this lovely encouragement, you're great and just keep loving. It's you are the exact opposite of this, repent, embrace the gospel, make the gospel the center of your home, the center of your church, and leave childish ways and grow to maturity in Jesus. Thus, the sixth and final way, I want to end with this then. How does Paul respond? Chapter 16, he comes to the point of everything when he tells them to act like men. He tells them, grow up. Look at Acts, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. This phrase, act like men, is actually something that would be given to soldiers when they're about to go into battle. Be strong. Be courageous. Be mature. Do your duty. Do your duty for God and for country. The Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, of the old testament uses the same word that here is translated act like men for the statements in deuteronomy and joshua where it's be strong and courageous as they're going into the land do your duty as a mature member of this body that's paul's message to corinth and that's my exhortation to you let's give up childish ways Let's give up pettiness. Let's give up boasting. And let's use what we have for their right purposes, which is for the church. Act like men. And at the heart of Christian maturity is love, right? Gospel love. That's the center. That's the center of all. It's something we do now. It's something we'll do for all eternity. And let all that you do be done in love remember that human greatness even spiritual christian greatness means nothing if there's no love driving it by the power of the gospel we can be the greatest church ever and be lost on the last day if we have not love Indeed, in chapter three, Paul tells them, therefore let each of you take care how you build. For the one that destroys Christ's church, God will destroy. So as we as a young church plant seeking core group members and families, seeking to grow as a church, let's not build on the wrong foundation, let's not build with the wrong materials, Let's not build with the wrong attitude. Let's the whole enterprise be in vain. Let's build with the gospel. Let's strive for maturity and let all that we do be done with a heart of love that comes from the power of the cross. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for this letter It had to have been a hard one for Corinth to receive. And it can be hard for us to receive as it critiques our own issues too. But Lord, I pray that you would bear much fruit, that you would bear much fruit in the sowing of the gospel in your word this morning in our lives. That we as a church gathered and as a church scattered throughout the week, that we would do all things for the glory of God that we would do all things that we might as Paul strove to be all things to all people that he might save some it's in that spirit that we desire to plant this church in this city it's with that desire Lord that I pray that we would continue to pray for one another that gospel love would be at the center of all that we do and that we would view our lives, our gifts, our talents for the upbuilding of the church. Thank you, Lord, that while we were weak and foolish, not many of us were wise or strong, that you saved us in Jesus by his blood shed on the cross, the scandal to the Jews and the folly to the wise and to the Gentiles. And that by that blood, you washed us clean. You gave us the mind of Christ. You gave us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I pray that we today and all days could say and encourage one another, therefore, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen.